If you have your Bible, let's open up to the book of 1 Samuel this morning. We're going to look at chapters 6 and 7. If you would remember from previous weeks, as has been stated over the past two weeks prior to this one, that chapters 4, 5, 6, and 7 really go together as one structured unit, each relating deeply to the last and the previous events that took place and what was going on. And so today we're going to attempt in our brief time to tackle two chapters and uh, we'll be doing lots of summary and sort of picking out uh, the main points and the main texts and the passages. The man that I told you about earlier during the welcome talking about Memorial Day, um, Seven or eight years later, I had the privilege of uh, doing his funeral. After that conversation, uh, we really became quite good friends. Uh, he wrote a memoir of his time and experience in the military. He later went on to uh, attain an, an MBA and uh, became a, a lecturer in, in several colleges and, and university universities and was a very sharp man. But that day, um, what he said in particular that is apropos to this morning as he said, when we make Memorial Day something that it really wasn't intended to, though our motives might be good, what ends up happening is we end up trivializing the actual holiday. We trivialize it. It's one thing to trivialize a, a holiday and to speak about it in terms that really it has nothing to do with those things. It's certainly another thing to trivialize the Lord, in particular, how he takes the sincerity of heart of a believer in the context of worship and treating and honoring him in his name and speaking of his glory and his holiness and not minimizing those things as a people of God, as a faith family. But here in chapter six, we really have more of the same. A people who are trivializing the holiness and the worship of God. A group of people who just don't quite understand, though their intentions might be right and perhaps some would even say are wholesome, they just simply continue to miss the mark. If you remember from previous weeks, the Israelites have had the Ark of God or the Ark of Lord captured by the Philistines. They have been conquered and, and been conquered and been at war and at battle and, and in sort of a cheap, cliched attempt to force God to act in a certain way, they thought, rather than seeking the Lord, if they brought the ark out to the battle, that God would then perform based on their terms and deliver them from the hands of the Philistines. And what we've seen is, is after 4,000 were lost in battle, then another 30,000 were lost in battle, the ark of the Lord was captured. Devastating to God's people. And then we pick up with what happens with the Philistines, with this group of Canaanites that do not know the Lord and the ways of the Lord. And God begins to send punishment and judgment on them and begins to afflict them with tumors and all kinds of maladies. And, and here they are coming to this place in their own hearts and, and lives where they realize that their punishment and judgment was because they held the ark. But even more so than that, what they didn't realize at that point was that they were in just utter rebellion to the one true God. And so after seven months, the Philistines gather up all of their leaders and their priests and the diviners, and they seek the will of, of their God and what they would do and decide to, it's time to bring it back. And we pick up in verse three of chapter six, and would you read along with me where he says, they said, if you send away the ark of God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means, return to him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed. 
And it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And so they said, what is this guilt offering that we shall return to him? They answered, five golden tumors and five golden mice. According to the number of the lords of the Philistines, for the same plague was on all of you and on your Lord. The question this poses us that these Philistines in their feeble attempt thought to appease the one true God is how simply do we repay a debt that we cannot assess to a God that we do not know? How can we be reconciled to the God of the Bible and the God of the scriptures if we as a people don't know who he is and we don't know the magnitude of the debt in which we owe? Isn't this the call and command of the gospel to believers today, to see every tribe, nation, and tongue, black, white, yellow, purple, and brown, come to a saving knowledge of faith in Christ. For how can they save themselves or hear about salvation apart from hearing about the saving knowledge of Jesus? How will they know him? And so the command for the Christian is to go and to tell them about the debt they owe to the God they do not yet understand. The text goes on in verse 5, and he says this, So you must make these images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land, and give glory to the God of Israel. And perhaps he will lighten his hand from off of you and your gods and your land. And why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their own hearts? Now in the Hebrew, what begins to happen in verses 5 and 6 is a little wordplay that's going back and forth that the original readers would have heard it and will begin to notice. And remember, as we read God's Word, we're not just seeking to understand what is God saying, but we ask another question. What is He doing oftentimes with the words that He is using? And what is He wishing to draw attention based on those to get to what is known as the authorial intent? We've seen in previous chapters, the word glory is used. Ichabod, the glory of the Lord has departed. The glory has revealed themselves by the Hebrew word kabod. And now we see this notion in verse six of why should you harden your hearts just as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts when God was delivering his people from bondage and slavery and the chains and and yet they just sort of dug in even deeper and in that instance, the word harden, he uses the word kabed. And you notice that phonetically they begin to sort of make this nuanced sound, kabod and kabed, glory and hardened. And what the author is seeking to do is to draw attention of the reversal that is needed to not harden, but rather to allow the glory in your life to be seen and shown the glory of the Israelites, God. The one to whom Pharaoh and the Egyptians hardened their own hearts. To not be like Eli who honored his son more than the Lord and, and, and hardened his heart towards the things of God and, and softened them even more so to where he valued his family's well-being over to the extent of the holiness and the glory and the manifestation of God's perfection on display. This is what we mean when we talk about glory. God revealing himself 
showing his holiness, showing his perfection and shouting it out to all the world that we as a people of God must be about proclaiming the glory of God. And what he's ultimately saying in this moment in these two verses is that a hard heart towards him will bring about a heavy judgment from him. That when we harden our hearts towards the things of God, that in this case and in this instance, it brings about the judgment of God. In this case, the judgment came in the form of, of tumors and they came in the form of pestilence and, and plague. And, and there God was seeking to redeem a people to himself to make the ears tingle of those that were around the Israelites, that he was doing something that could only be explained by him and only be given credit to him. But a hard heart towards him brings about a heavy judgment from him. But I want you to notice in the middle of verse 5, after he speaks about giving glory to the God of Israel, he says, perhaps, or rather the elders of the Philistines say, perhaps. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off of you and your gods and your land. You see, we can learn a thing or two in this moment from this group of Philistines. I think very winsomely and, and wisely and correctly, though they might have perhaps missed the, the means by which they were to be reconciled to God. But at least in this moment, that one little word, perhaps, that exists in the text, we see this group of Philistines doing something that many Christians often do. But what they did that was correct in this moment is they did not presume that God would be merciful to them. And the same is true of the believer. Don't presume upon God's mercy or think you can force him to lift his judgment in some way. That we should not presume it. We should not take it for granted that he will and always will be, though he has been merciful to us in Christ. He has been gracious to us in Christ. We must not presume that we will always forgo the consequence of our sin and the consequence of our actions. Because remember, as we begin to harden our hearts towards him, he will bring about a heavy judgment from himself. The following verses all the way down through verse 18 really describe the interplay and give some details to the narrative of how they went about returning the ark and, and all that was involved with that. And I want you to skip down to verse 19 as they receive the ark. God then begins to bring further judgment upon his, on these people. Uh, and I say his people, they weren't really his people, but they were people made in his image. And so here he is, and it says in verse 19, and he struck some of the men because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them. And the people began to mourn because the Lord had struck the people with what's described in the text as a great blow. Now, we saw a similar word in the Hebrew text back in chapter 4, verse 10, but it was rendered a little bit differently. It just simply said, great slaughter. The same phrase, same expression in the Hebrew, but the numbers in this moment are different. Rather than thousands upon thousands in this moment, only 70. But the numbers are relevant. Because what we have in this moment is God displaying His power. 
And God displaying his sovereign nature and that he is the one that is in control and that he is the one who can rightly judge the peoples of the earth. And so he judges them. And he shows a great blow for those that looked upon it. In verse 20, then these men said, who was able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? Who will stand before this holy God? The truth is, not one of us. No one in this life will stand before a holy God apart from the forgiveness of Jesus and the holiness that he imputes to us, that he gives to us. That you and I in our own and in our sin and in our flesh, we cannot stand or approach or look because he is that holy. And because he is holy, he deals with sin and he deals with sin severely and, and harshly and, and he judges and, and he judges and judged his son, Jesus, for your sin and for mine and for the sin of the world. That though it was condemned, Christ did not come into the world to condemn the world, for it was already condemned, but rather he came to redeem and to bring hope and to share the good news of His gospel, of His story of a holy God, emphasizing this being now that was distinct from anything that was ordinary. And He's saying to the Israelites, and He's saying to the Philistines, and He's saying to you and me today, do not dare trivialize Him. Don't minimize. Don't make Him ordinary. Don't believe that He's ordinary because friends he is not there is nothing comparable to him there is nothing in his class or in his stature that compares to him he's indescribable he's our awesome god he's sovereign he's eternal he's immutable he's kind and compassionate and gracious and slow to anger he's a god who has satisfied his wrath on the context of His Son so that you and I didn't have to absorb it. Friend, He is a holy God. Do not trivialize our God. When you come to worship, when you come to His house, don't trivialize Him. Don't go through the motions as we sing. Leaders, as you play, don't go through the motions as we prepare a sermon or, or a lesson. Don't be casual about it. There is nothing casual about God, though he is a friend to us. He is not our friend. He is distinct from us. We are his image bearers. He is not ours. And we approach him with that fear and with that reverence and with that understanding because he is not unworthy and we shall not trivialize the Lord our God. Chapter 7 continues along in this narrative. But some things happen. The people of God receive the ark of the Lord back. And they bring it to this little obscure hill and they consecrate it in verse 1. And, and it says in verse 2, if you'll notice, this sort of often thrown away little passage and few words where it just simply says that 20 years passes. So you can imagine the context of what has just happened. They have been invaded by the Philistines. 
sought the own counsel of their elders apart from the Lord and sought seeking to be wise in their own eyes, repeating the pattern of what existed in the life of judges. And, and they lose the ark. They, they get the ark back. They see some miraculous thing. God afflict these men, these Philistines with tumors and the plague and, and they receive it back and then they sort of tuck it away. They're thankful that they now have their, their preference and, and the thing that they held to the, to the dearest and, and they just sort of uh, tuck it away. And then the way the text reads, it says that some 20 years and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. What this does not mean, and most scholars would agree with this, that the English is a little bit peculiar in this instance, that if we're not careful, we would say that they lamented for a period of 20 years. But what is really happening and a better rendering of that is they would say that after 20 years and seeing God do miraculous things, they tuck the ark away, almost ignoring it, if you will. And finally, after 20 years, God begins to move in the hearts and the people of God begin to confess and begin to repent and they begin to lament to the Lord. Finally, something begins to happen in the life of God's people. And verse three picks up and he says, though then Samuel says to all the house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth and from among you and direct your heart to the Lord your God and serve him only and he will deliver you out of the hands of the Philistines. So the people of Israel, they put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth and they serve the Lord only. We know the Baal as being sort of the male predominant god of the Canaanites, but who in the world was this Ashtaroth? Well, this was the Canaanite goddess, the wife of Baal. She was the representation of storm and fertility. She was a god that was deeply worshipped and, and revered. And so these Israelites, what began to happen, they received the ark. And then for a period of 20 years, Seeing God's holiness and glory return in essence through this and having a man like Samuel after God's own heart and, and serving the Lord and being that intermediary between God's people and God, they tuck that ark away and then what they begin to do is they begin to adopt the gods in the land of Cana. Think about this. Think about the incredulity of this moment where they've seen these miraculous things and then they begin to just forget about God and begin to adopt the idols that existed within the land and the culture in which they found themselves. And so Samuel, kindly and pastorally, rather prophetically, as the high priest should, he says, if you are returning with all of your heart, if you're being sincere, then put away or destroy those gods and therefore turn. Verse five says, then Samuel said, gather them all and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and they fasted on that day and they said, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel then judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. All these years later, they finally, even if for a brief moment, began to understand. They finally, even if for a, a very brief moment in time, begin to understand in this act in verse six of drawing water and pouring it out and fasting before the Lord, these were not symbolic gestures. 
They weren't the trivialization of, of repentance and the life of, of God's people. No, these were meaningful and real acts. This was a people who were distancing themselves from the ways of the world and the, the cities around them and the culture and the idolatry that existed. And they said, we as a people are going to live now, therefore, set apart from those things in and amongst them, but apart from them. And so they fast and they pour out water before the Lord. And then they said corporately together, for we have sinned together. I think this is a reminder to too many of us who too often believe that Baptists sometimes are the worst of this, that in our evangelization and in our zeal to see lost people, we talk about faith in the context of the individual only. Certainly only I will stand before God and be accountable for my actions. But when we see oftentimes throughout Scripture, we see these moments of, of corporate confession of the people of God acknowledging together the sin before God. And here in this moment, they say corporately together, we have adopted the idols in this world. We have forsaken the Lord our God. Our hearts are far from him. Father, help us turn to you, to yourself, for we have sinned. And Samuel judged the people. And I think this is an appropriate moment just to say a couple of things about repentance and what it is and characteristics of it. Number one, I just want to say that repentance is simply just hearing what is wrong, understanding it, seeking to understand. And when we say something is wrong, it means we're, we're seeking to measure that wrongness according to what God says and not the ways of the world. When we say something is wrong or, or sinful, we better be sure that it says it's wrong and sinful according to this truth, because this is our ultimate reality. This is our standard. This is the thing by which we measure all other truth. It's what we need for salvation. It's what we need to flourish as human beings. We hear what is wrong, but number two, we own our sin, and we don't deflect it upon other people. And pastoral ministry is one of those funny things whenever you're managing conflict with people is that it's easy for us to point out the sin that's in someone else's life and fail to take account and to recognize where, where we play a role in those things at time, whether our tone was wrong, whether we spoke too much or whether we didn't speak at all and, and we were like Eli and we allowed things and passivity and apathy to grow and to fester, but it's owning our own sin and not deflecting on others. It's also realizing that God is right. Affirming when he shows he is right. It's about confessing where we got it wrong. Friend, did, did you know it is okay for you to admit that you've been wrong? I know this for me. I learned this the hard way as a young 29-year-old pastor who thought he had to be right about everything all the time and had to be the smartest guy in the room. And God took me through a season of, of deep humility and trying times. And there was a time in, in my own ministry where I felt like that I, I just wanted to quit and didn't want to do this anymore. And, and one day I came home after just a season of just being in a, in a deep valley. And, and my wife just said to me in a very kind, pastoral and, and gentle way, it's time to move on from this. She wasn't talking about ministry. She wasn't talking about forsaking the call. 
She was just simply talking about being a victim and living with that identity for a brief time. Confessing where we get it wrong, but then most importantly, turning away from our sin and turning towards the Lord. Turning away from something that involves repentance, but but perhaps as we turn away, the thing that we need to make sure that we emphasize, as we turn away from one thing, we need to turn towards something. And we have a peculiar way oftentimes of dealing with sin. We'll turn from one sin and then we'll turn to another sin. We'll find other ways in in seasons of pandemics and stress and anxiety to deal with our anxiety and stress. And and we realize that in one way it's it's wrong. And so we turn from that, but we turn to something else that is erroneous and, and wrong. And friends, the way of the Lord is that we turn from our sins and we turn towards him. For he is the only one that can redeem us of our sins and to make good of our sins and to reconcile us to him. But lastly, I'll say this about repentance, that I think many Southern Baptists fail to recognize, either in the harshness of repentance and telling people, and, and you know the preachers, the, the turn or burn baby, and, and there are certainly hell is a reality, but here's the thing that I think many Southern Baptists need to grapple with and that you perhaps need to wrestle with, that every time that you practice a position of repentance, it is an act of a gracious God showing you that he loves you and reminding you that he cares for you. When you recognize your need to own your responsibility and to listen and to hear, that is a most gracious thing from a kind and loving and compassionate God that he would not let you stay in your sin. That he calls you out of darkness and into light. Verse 7 goes on, and he says, These Philistines hear the people of Israel gathered, and the people in verse 8 of Israel said to Samuel, Don't cease to cry out to the Lord. And so Samuel, verse 9, took a nursing lamb. He offers the whole thing. And as Samuel, verse 10, was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack. But notice what the Lord does. He thunders with a mighty sound that day against them, and he throws them into confusion. You remember back in chapter 2, when Hannah's praying in chapter 2, verse 10, and she makes this statement, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces, and against them he will thunder in heaven. Thunder. And here, fulfilling in this moment in verse 10, all the way down in chapter 7, the fulfillment of of Hannah's uh, word of the Lord. Against them he will thunder in heaven. And so Samuel took up a stone and he set it up and he called it Ebenezer. Until now the Lord has helped us. We're out of time and so I'll say this in conclusion. There was a battle that the Israelites faced at another location at a different Ebenezer. And the outcome at that battle was quite detrimental to them, much loss of life and bad things occurred. And all that was lost in the first Ebenezer was restored through repentance in the second. Everything that was lost before in in chapter 4 was now restored in in this moment. And, And now the people of God would hold the rock up and they would say, God is our help in time of need. Friend, this morning, can I just gently remind you that 
through confession of sin and repentance of heart, we can be made right with God. That the gospel of Jesus, it frees us from our sins and frees us from condemnation and it gives us life and freedom because our God is a God of help. He helps us. Let us be reminded of that truth as we pray and sing and respond. If you do not know the Lord Jesus, my prayer for you today, this morning, is that you would be reconciled to the Father through the Son. That God would convict you of your sins and begin to draw you with His Holy Spirit and show you where you perhaps have, have missed His standard and mark and failed to measure up and that He would restore to you the joy of, of salvation and freedom that comes with walking with Jesus. So that you could say, like so many in here, here I raise my Ebenezer, my, my God of help this morning. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we ask that in these few moments that we have to respond, that you would move in a, in a way that we would see and demonstrate. Father, I ask that uh, you would change us to look more like your son, Jesus, as we practice obedience and work out our faith. Father, would you help us be kind to us, be gracious to us, you always are. And we say thank you, according to your spirit, and God's people said, amen.